Welcome to the RHA Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Jim McDonald, Chair of Intelligas Group and former Chair of WDS Limited and the Energy Pipelines CRC. It's wonderful to have you along today for the Arate podcast, and I'm really looking forward to bringing this conversation to you with Jim. I've known Jim for about seven years, and over that time, we've had a great relationship as he's moved through a number of different board roles, and I've been growing my business, Arate Executive. So it's fantastic to be able to sit down with him in his home at Hope Island and have this great conversation about his career, particularly the work he's done in the oil and gas industry in Australia, given that he's been somebody that has been at the forefront of driving that industry here for many, many years. Before I introduce Jim to you properly, let me firstly introduce myself for those people who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive, and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if you have any recruitment requirements within your organisation, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you about that. Let me now introduce to you Jim McDonald. Jim McDonald was born in country Victoria, and after spending a short time in his early career working in his family's retail business, he started working in the oil and gas industry. He spent the majority of his early career with ESO Australia, joining in 1971. And then in 1994, he moved into AGL, firstly as Managing Director of their East Australian Pipeline Operations, and then Foundation CEO and MD of APA Australia. In 2005, he exited his executive career to move into a portfolio career and has been an active company director with organisations like Hastings Funds Management. He was the chair of WDS Limited. He was on the board of Pearl Street Limited and the foundation chair of the Energy Pipelines CRC and has been in his current role as chair of Intelligas Group since 2010. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Jim McDonald. So, Jim, uh, welcome to the Arate podcast. It's great to have you along. I think we've been keen to uh, have this conversation for probably three or four months now, and we're sitting uh, at beautiful Hope Island on a lovely day. It's uh, very nice to be with you. Thank you, Richard. Uh, So just to begin with, perhaps um, uh, just have a little bit of a chat about your current uh, responsibilities. Yeah, I'm currently um, chairman of uh, the Intelligas group of companies. Uh Uh-huh. And the head company of which is, I guess, Energy right. Holdings Limited. Okay. Um, it's an unlisted public company. And we are, uh, the group is a uh, specialist gas technology and gas engine technology business. Right. And we have a number of um, significant patents. Okay. To do with management of gas as a fuel for engines at high pressure. Right. Our systems run um, in excess of 350 bar, which is in excess of 
5,000 PSI. Uh-huh. So we, our systems are generally uh, in excess of twice the pressure of conventional CNG systems, right. which is gives us essentially twice the energy density okay. of conventional CNG. And we approach uh, two-thirds of the energy density of LNG. Mm-hmm. So we are a serious um, gas engine fuel business. We've supplemented the gas uh, fuel business by reverting to engine technology and applying uh, known technologies to improve the uh, uh, percentage of gas that we can use in diesel cycle engines Uh and so displace diesel. And we have engines running, very large engines running um, with displacement of up to 90% and in some cases in excess of 90% of the diesel Mm -hmm. in large machines, highway trucks and mining machinery. Right. And so um, uh, how did you get into that? A friend and I, uh, years ago, um, um, worked together in Bass Strait. In Mm -hmm. my youth, I I joined the oil and gas industry with ESSA. And he and I worked together and uh, we had a little business together in sale. We both resigned from ESSO within a year of each other. Mm -hmm. He came to Queensland and uh, joined Mooney Oil. Mm -hmm. And uh, I resigned from ESSO. I went to Darwin um, as chief executive of NT Gas Mm -hmm. when it was first formed. He um, left Mooney Oil at about the same time as AGL acquired it. Mm -hmm. And... uh, and he and a friend of his um, together founded, so the foundation partners in Energy Developments Limited. Yes. Which is now EDL. Yes. And there's a history there. Right. Um, so he has maintained his association with gas through mm-hmm. EDL. And of course, in EDL, EDL's strength became. Uh, removing gas from waste dumps mm-hmm. and cleaning it and putting it through uh, diesel cycle engines mm-hmm. to generate electricity, so right. converting methane from waste dumps into electricity uh-huh. for export. And that's uh, they were world leaders in mm-hmm. that. Uh, they were world first uh, with the technology. They also, um, in their early days, put a 90-something megawatts of single, you know, 1,000, like one megawatt engines, but 90-something of them, on the Appen Coal Seam okay. um, near Wollongong for BHP Coal, and that's still running. Right. Uh, you know, 30 years later or mm-hmm. whatever. And uh, so that was the first, I think, the first in Australia, certainly, mm-hmm. of coal bed methane, not coal seam, but coal bed methane development right. For power production, okay, and uh, and so they were they were front end movers in the business of um, moving uh, relatively exotic exotic sources of gas mm-hmm. and converting it into electricity for mm-hmm. either on fields on site use or export. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
He resigned from... He wound up as managing director of that company mm-hmm. shortly after the turn of the century. Right. And uh, So he, he was uh, the predecessor to Greg at EDL. Who's Greg, the president, chief executive? He's just uh, left now, I believe. Yeah, so he would have been Greg's yeah. predecessor. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and Chris Murray... Uh, do you know Chris? No. Uh, Chris Murray was there, and he now he's been on my podcast as well, and uh, he uh, is now the uh, CEO of Geodynamics. So okay. uh, I've Ed- heard of him. Not, yeah. I don't, I've not met him. Yet. So EDL is one of those companies that's done very well, and it's you know developed some really interesting careers. It has, and yeah. Paul resigned um, shortly after the turn of the century. Right. Uh, when I was by then, I. Moved and we'll get to that, but I, I was chief executive of the uh, what well, is now the APA group, and uh, of, was it was at that time Australian Pipeline Trust, mm-hmm. and uh, I resigned in two thousand and five, um, and went into happy resignation down on the Gippsland Lakes, and then Paul said to me, "I've got this, I've got this uh, friend of mine um, who was." A very very senior engineer with EDL, um, mm-hmm. and uh, who had done a lot of work with engines and gas engines in particular. Mm-hmm. And he said, "We're working on high pressure gas fuel systems mm-hmm. for highway trucks." Right. So I started coming up here, and then I put a few bob into it with them, and then I was flying up and down mm-hmm. from Victoria. I was driving from. Gippsland Lakes to the Tullamarine Airport and then mm-hmm. flying up here and going back. It was a pretty tiresome process to come here. Sure. Um, but I was, I was very impressed with um, the development of the technology mm-hmm. and the promise. Mm-hmm. So I put a few bob in and, and uh, joined the organisation and, uh, and Paul asked me to be chairman um, and outlined what could happen or what might happen right. in the future and that interested me so great and how so far here along I am. <laughs> is that how far along is the technology now in terms of uh you know it's commercialization how far along is the engine technology is very well advanced uh-huh. um, the gas technology itself is proven mm-hmm. uh, it's not cheap mm. so the its commercialisation depends upon the differential in price mm-hmm. between gas and diesel. Sure. Because our objective is to displace diesel mm-hmm. as a fuel. Now, it's much, much better from an environmental perspective. Mm-hmm. We, we're 25% or 26% probably better in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. We're 100% per inter- percent better in terms of particulate emissions compared to diesel. Uh, however, there's no network of service stations right. at which you can fuel. Sure. So getting this thing commercialised yeah. involves having service stations mm-hmm. as well as conversion of fleets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the engine which we based our original decision to proceed on was a Cummins-Westport engine produced in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was sold in the Americas, North America, um, with a... LNG fuel system, okay. which is a misnomer. It's LNG storage tank, right? 
when it gets to the engine, it's CNG. Right. Because it's at its high pressure. Mm-hmm. It has to be the same pressure as the diesel injectors in order to get into the engine. Yeah. So they converted the LNG, they heated it, flashed it back to CNG, mm-hmm. and uh, and put it to the engine as CNG. Mm-hmm. And so it's doing the same job as ours, except we put ours on the truck as CNG, right. okay. as, as high-pressure CNG. So more efficient. We see it as more efficient, yeah. and it's certainly cheaper. Right. And it has less of the, uh, what we call the um, issues mm-hmm. that go with cryogenic fuel. Mm-hmm. Cryogenic fuel is minus 160 degrees. So first thing you've got to do is get it there, so that's expensive. To produce LNG is not cheap, mm-hmm. particularly in relatively small quantities. Mm-hmm. And to take it as a side stream from a major refinery such as we have at Gladstone, a major mm-hmm. plant, is expensive. And then you've got to truck it in cryogenic containers, you've got to decant it into cryogenic containers, and you've got to decant it again into cryogenic fuel systems on trucks. Mm-hmm. Anywhere along the line that, that that gets tangled up with people is very dangerous fuel. Right. Uh, and so uh, we don't want to. Den- I don't want to denigrate LNG. I mean, yeah. it's got its future, and and it's and it's obviously creating mm-hmm. enormous market for Australian product, generally into power stations mm-hmm. in in Asia. So when you look to the future, you know, uh, if you were aspirationally optimistic, you know, what would you like to see happen with this technology? I would like to think that there will become a time that's not too far away mm-hmm. where we will have uh, highway fleets mm-hmm. of HTCNG mm. trucks with engines that are fully capable of... Uh, diesel cycle engines fully capable mm-hmm. of using the fuel mm-hmm. and fueling stations along the highways mm-hmm. and when to enable them to refuel. Right. And when you say not too far away, what does that mean? Are you talking... Within the next decade, or yeah, within the next decade. Wow. Okay. Now there's some things happening. We we put a demonstration vehicle mm-hmm. uh, with a uh, a compactor truck, a refuse compactor mm-hmm. truck, into work with um, North Adelaide Waste Management mm-hmm. and Sewers is the company that actually owns the fleet. Right. And we put a, a truck into service down there on demonstration, and they were delighted with that. That's that's converted into an order okay. for 20-something, I think it's 23, it could be 25, and they're presently being prepared Fantastic. to go down to replace their existing mm-hmm. fleet. And is, is this technology also emerging elsewhere in the world, or is this an Australian first? High-density <coughs> CNG, HD CNG, mm-hmm. which is, we've trademarked mm-hmm. that product, is an Australian invention. Mm-hmm. And it's all 100% Australian-owned, mm-hmm. and to my, to my knowledge, the only place that is being wow. utilised is okay. here. That's very exciting. It is, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, a great sort of view of where things are at for you now. Mm. Why don't we go back uh, and talk about your earlier life? So okay. uh, well, whereabouts uh, were you born? Tarelgan, Victoria. Okay. And uh, uh, tell us about mum and dad and early life. Okay, um, my my <coughs> my mum was also born in Turalgan. Okay, and um, she lost her mother when she was but a baby, mm-hmm. 
and she lost her father when I was but a baby. Mm-hmm. I was born in 1940, mm-hmm. and uh, my grandfather, her father, was killed in 1943. Right. And his life has recently been recorded in a book entitled No Turning Back. Uh, he's a hero on the island of Nauru. Okay. He was killed by the Japanese mm-hmm. occupiers following an American bombing raid, mm-hmm. which did damage to their aircraft and the airstrip and a few other things. And he and four other uh, Europeans, a doctor, a pharmacist and two engineers, had mm-hmm. stayed behind. He was the administrator of the island. Mm-hmm. And they sta- stayed behind when they evacuated all the other okay. um, Europeans, right. Australians. New Zealanders on the island uh, to look after the natives mm-hmm. during the Japanese occupation, mm-hmm. and immediately the Japanese occupied the island. They incarcerated them, and they mm-hmm. remained in um, arrest, in house arrest, mm-hmm. uh, house incarceration, until this bombing raid in 1943. Mm-hmm. So it was nearly a year they were in jail, mm-hmm. and after the bombing raid, the, the Japanese. Um, Hauled them out and um, murdered is not too strong a word. Mm. Mm. It was a very brutal time, wasn't it? A very brutal time. Yeah, and yeah. so so mum didn't have parents. Right. Dad was a barber. He His father was a horsebreaker. Okay. Uh, at Warrigal, yeah. just on a little farmlet out of Warrigal. He was mm-hmm. also a survey assistant. Mm hmm. Uh, and he, there's a there's a Mount McDonald down there named for him, okay. uh, just uh, north right. east of Warrigal. Mm-hmm. And my dad um, was one of um, five children, and he became a barber, head men's hairdresser. Okay. And he moved to Tarelgan in the early thirties. I don't know if he moved because of Mum or whether after we moved he met Mum, right. but, but make a long story short, they sure. were married in the early 30s mm-hmm. and uh, their first child was my brother, who right. didn't survive birth, mm-hmm. uh, died. Uh, my sister Judith was born in 1937, I was born in 1940, my sister Eileen was born in 1943 and my brother Graham was born in 1946, so there were four live children in yeah. the family and then we grew up together okay through and post the second world war yeah and in the golden years of uh, of development of this country uh, you know the post-war years of australia was just wonderful mm-hmm. um and my mum and dad had their own business in Tarelgan. um they, so he was the barber and, and she, she had a, she had a gift store out the front okay. and a tobacconist okay the stuff that normally goes around a barber shop, mm-hmm. pipes, uh, tobacco and cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then mum added a significant range of gifts. Okay. Uh, and eventually added sporting goods and right. expanded the business. Uh-huh. And, uh, mm. It's interesting, it's an, uh, you know, the barber shops that you see now are almost going back to that model. Uh-huh. You know, they're mm-hmm. all the fancy grooming products and... They're much more than just a place for a guy to get a quick haircut. Mm. Uh, it's how funny how uh, you know these trends kind of go in cycles. Recycle, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, you did your high schooling in Tarragon? No, 
I did primary school in Tarogan, yeah. um, at St Michael's School, mm-hmm. taught by the Josephite nuns. Okay. I um, imagine they're pretty strict. I ha- she, uh, Sister Michael was my teacher, and mm-hmm. she may have been the best teacher I ever had. Right. She was a wonderful girl, a wonderful lady. She had 90-something students mm-hmm. in grades 4, 5, and 6 in one room. Wow. And taught all of us. All on her own. All on her own. And it was just a wonderful Mm. time. And I adored her. She was a terrific teacher. And we did strange things then. Um, We were on a roster to come to school at 7.30 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And if you were on the roster, you came to school and you had to clean the floor. Okay. And including the floor included polishing it and hand polishing it with, with cloths. Okay. Um, then I finished that school. That was 19. So I went to school when I was about six, I suppose, or five or six, mm-hmm. as you do. And 1951, I completed mm-hmm. my primary school in 1952 to 1957. I went as a boarder to St. Patrick's College in Sale, which was mm-hmm. staffed by the Morris brothers. Okay. So I had five years of secondary mm-hmm. school. In those days... Um, the secondary school education uh, at St Pat was form one, sub-intermediate, intermediate, leaving matric. So it was a five-year secondary school mm-hmm. these days at six, I think. Mm-hmm. So I, I was in matriculation by the time I was 15. Um, I didn't complete matriculation that year. I failed French, I think. But I, so I repeated matriculation right, yeah. in 1957. Passed, received the university free place. So I had pretty good academic results. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was ready to enter the big world at, mm-hmm. at the age of 16. Mm-hmm. Um, I fifty-seven. sorry, at the age of 17. I went into matric at 16. I completed matric at mm-hmm. 17. However, I'd chosen... At that time, um, I'd been I'd been angling to get to university to study medicine. Right. You know, the subjects I'd, I'd chosen were yeah. chemistry, physics, yeah. mathematics, Latin, mm-hmm. English, English literature and so forth. Um, pardon me. However, during that final year, I chose to enter Corpus Christi College, Werribee, to train to be a Catholic priest. Right. And what uh, uh, created that desire within you? Um, well, certainly the, the, the brothers, you know, yeah. they, they tend to foster mm-hmm. um, in children, in their, in their children, they tend to foster um, vocations mm-hmm. or an ambition for a vocation. And then we had visiting priests, the Passionists, I think they were, that came and ran a retreat, you mm-hmm. know, which was a um, spiritual number of days, mm-hmm. four or five days. And during that, uh, the the uh, retreat master, the Passionist, had approached me and, and asked me whether I had considered. And there's a great similarity between saying, well, I think I want to do medicine because I think that's a useful thing for the community mm-hmm. and saying, well, priesthood's also a useful thing mm-hmm. for the community. And so I don't know if that answers your question, but it's in there right. somewhere in that mix is, is the outcome. Yeah. So I headed off in 1958 mm-hmm. to Corpus Christi College, Werribee, mm-hmm. 
to embark upon uh, uh, nominally four years of philosophy and four years of theology mm-hmm. before ordination. Yeah. I completed two years of the first of it right. and left. Okay. Yeah. What, um, uh, what changed your mind to make you want to leave after two years? I considered a lot of things to do with the priesthood. Um, I considered some things that my parents wanted me to do, mm-hmm. or would, would like me to do, mm-hmm. and I just chose to leave. Fair enough. Simple. Yeah. Um, and so then you uh, went and worked um, for the education department? Yes. Right. That was... Uh, The editor might ever take a run at this, but that was an interesting experience. Okay. A very dear friend of my father's name was Ed Barber, and he was a press secretary to half a dozen premiers of Victoria. Right. And and I was a bit keen to see if I could get my university free place re-established, which I'd right. lost. Yeah. By not taking it up. Mm-hmm. So Dad said, "Talk to Ed; he might be able to help you." So I went to see Ed. And uh, Ed said, oh, come in and see me in the office, which yeah. was in Parliament House in Victoria. So I went and I met a few people and he said, come in the corner. So he took me in the corner and up to the office of the Secretary of Education, whose name coincidentally was MacDonald. Right. So we had a chat and he said, oh, the only way you're going to get that free place back is to put your results of two years ago up against the upcoming results okay. of this year's matriculants. Yeah. And he said, and that's still iffy, mm-hmm. he said, there's an alternative way to university and that's a secondary studentship which the education department totally controls. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get the same story, you've got to put your results of mm-hmm. two years ago up against applicants and matriculants mm-hmm. of this year. Mm-hmm. But it's another path. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> pardon me, he said, there's no guarantees in any of this, but it's, they're both paths forward for you. He said, what are you going to do in the meantime? And uh, I said, I suppose I want a job. He said, would you work here, would you? I said, oh, I don't know. Oh, what, what sort of job? He said, oh, there's a few jobs already that might be interesting to you. And he said, come with me. and took me out in the door of a fellow's office and said, his name was Vern Smith. He said, Vern, he said, you had a vacancy in here for, for a clerk. He said, is it still there? Vern said, yeah, we ran a search and yeah and, and what are the advertisements mm-hmm. we haven't got anyone he said well here's your man right <laughs> so i was appointed a short to, job interview short job interview. i was appointed to a clerical job in education by the right. secretary of education at, okay. the, at the behest of my dad's friend so it's a bit interesting anyway right so i worked there for 12 months and then mum and dad had expanded their business and, and moved into a bigger premises over the road from where the little business was mm-hmm. and wanted me to come back and work with them mm-hmm. and I was happy to go back and work. So I work, worked in retail. Right. With my mum and dad, yeah. um, counting pennies and mm-hmm. watching pounds, yeah. if you like. Because yeah. um, uh, small was, retail business is not, not easy to run. Yeah. So that was for about seven years. Yeah, and in that seven years we bought a building over the road. Right. Uh, which had three shops facing the main street. And, okay. And we built two shops behind that, right. so we got in a little bit of what you'd call real estate. Fun so business space. was pretty good. 
Well, it sort of was, except that brought with it a pretty big mortgage and a note. Yeah. And my brother had left school and joined. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had married, mm-hmm. and I married 1964. Uh, I went back there in 1962, 61. 61. Yeah, 61 something. Um, I married in 1964 and uh, had first child in 1967. Mm-hmm. And uh, by then, we'd opened a milk bar right. that was running pretty close to 24 hours a day, and my brother and I were sharing the load. And uh, we were short on cash flow, and I said, I need to get out and find something that'll bring in pretty substantial money, because mm-hmm. we paid each other the basic wage, you know. Mm-hmm. We were really, my, my wife, was, my then wife, was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, we need to find some way of getting additional cash. So I'll see if I can get a job somewhere and, right. and bring additional cash. And I'll be still able to work after hours and weekends yep. and stuff. And a mate of mine was working for Richter Borden Drilling in Bass Strait. Bass Strait at that time was just being developed. Barracuda mm-hmm. was in the water and running and Marlon was in the water and running. And the halibut jacket was in the water and it was due to be commissioned sometime soon. Mm-hmm. And the Kingfish A and Kingfish B jackets were in the, in the water mm-hmm. and they were having their topsides assembled, you know, okay. separators yeah. and machinery put into mm-hmm. place. So a bit of activity in Bass Strait. So Bill took me down, I met a fellow at Sale and I took a job with Richter Borden Drilling as a mm-hmm. camp attendant. So I was mopping floors, bashing Dixies and cooking, uh, assistant cook. My first job in the oil field. Did you say bashing Dixies? They call them bashing Dixies. What does that mean? Washing big dishes in big sinks. Right. (laughs) The Dixies are the big pots. Yeah, the big pots, right. Big pots, and you bash them in the sink. So it's called bashing Dixies. It's a military term. That's a good one. I haven't heard that one before. (laughs) And so after about six months Mm. of that, uh, I was made redundant because the peak workforce thing had moved along and the construction phase was was coming to an end on several platforms. Mm-hmm. So off I went and um, I went to, uh, and by then we got used to the, the cash flow. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, I might stick around, keep trying to get a job. So I went over to what was then, uh, I think it's now the CES, I don't know what they called it then. Oh, right, they're, they're sort of a... Commonwealth Employment yeah. Thing office. They're where, they're where the unemployed would go to view all the jobs yeah. that were available. And the jobs were on a four by three card stuck Yeah, I remember that. On rubber bands. On, yeah, it was in Morwell. Yeah. And there was a job there for a site class at Long... A site clerk at Longford. Okay. <clears throat> which was... Longford was where the gas plant... Mm-hmm. existed and the crude stabilisation plant mm-hmm. was being built in preparation for the commissioning of Halibut platform okay. which would be the first purely crude oil platform mm-hmm. and uh, the new design, Simon Carves was the construction company for the crude plant, the right. crude stabilisation plant and they needed a side clerk so I pulled the cart off the wall and drove down the road to Simon Carves to the protest of the bloke that was running the office. He said, you can't take that. I said, I've taken it. I'll bring it back. Right. I went down and interviewed Simon Carson and got the job. Uh-huh. So I worked in the gas plant at Longford uh, building uh, as part of the construction crew mm-hmm. 
building the crude plant, and that was coming to an end. Mm-hmm. And I started, by that, I knew through that process, I knew a lot of SO engineers. <coughs> and I said to them, I, I wouldn't mind seeing if there's a job I could get with SO. Mm-hmm. And they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know, I was attracted to that offshore work, offshore production work. Mm-hmm. And uh, they arranged for an interview for me. Mm-hmm. And I spoke to my family, and they didn't disagree. And so, by February of 1990, I suppose it must have been. Uh, about 1971, something like that, when you went to West Virginia? 1970, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I said 1990. Sorry, yeah. By about... February of 1991. Yeah. I had two jobs. Right. I was a site clerk at Longford and I was a training production operator with ESSA. So. Right. And I made arrangements to make that work. I'd go and come up. I was living in Theralgon, which yeah. is 30 miles away. So I'd get out of bed in the morning, drive to Sale, go to the training schools. Right. Knock off at 3.30 or 4, drive to Longford and complete my duties there and right. go home about 9 or 10 o'clock at night. So you know, you've been a busy man for your whole life. Always liked being busy. Right. Yeah. And so you worked, end up working for SO um, for, what, about four or five years? A total of 15. Right. But at, at, oh, that's right. But at, at one point you ended up going and being, uh, what, based in New Orleans? Yeah, I lived in Lafayette in Louisiana. But wow. the, the organisation was based in New Orleans and yeah. I worked in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. That must have been an amazing experience. A lovely experience, yeah. yeah. Uh, that was a training experience. Uh-huh. And, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, I did some quite specific work over there and work over and wildline work. Mm-hmm. And did some training, went to University of Texas Production School. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, other training, but basically I learnt more about the business right. of oil and gas production. I was okay. already a supervisor yeah. at home. When I came back, they made me a senior supervisor, right. and I was one of the first two Australians to take charge of, because we worked even time rosters, one mm-hmm. on there and one off. Mm-hmm. And myself and a fellow called Daryl Archibald were the first two Australians right. to replace Americans and Canadians right. as senior supervisors of Halibut, which was mm-hmm. the major oil-producing platform in Bass Strait, which mm-hmm. made it the major oil source in Australia. Mm-hmm. And I imagine uh, <coughs> at that time in the industry, mm-hmm. when things like health and safety were probably not as rigorously uh, managed as it is now, it probably was there, you would have seen some you know, really interesting times. Well, that's true, but uh, I must say <coughs> that um, we did manage health and safety rigorously. Mm-hmm. We did not. We weren't accident-free. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, we were very, very safety-conscious in those days. So, Jim, um, in uh, you were with SO for, as you say, about 15 years. Mm. And then um, uh, in 1986, you went to AGL. So what... Uh, what uh, it wasn't directly to AGL. Okay. Uh, I got rung up by people like you. Right. Saying there's a... Um, New pipeline being built right in the Northern Territory to provide gas to the Power and Water Authority's power stations at Tennant Creek, Catherine, and Darwin, and they're building new power stations at all three locations. And the pipeline's being built, 
and the company that will manage those pipelines uh, it's called NT Gas, and they're looking for a chief executive. And somebody said you might be interested. Right. So I said, "Oh, we'll have an interview." So I had an interview, and and uh, the company is owned by Mooney Oil, AGL, mm -hmm. and CSR Petroleum, and mm -hmm. they all three were represented on the panel that interviewed mm -hmm. me. And then a couple of days later, they rang up and said, "So what do we need to do to close the deal?" I said, "What are you talking about?" And they said, "Well, how much do you want?" And all that sort of stuff. Right. And I frankly hadn't th thought about it. Wow, that's an amazing, sh uh, I mean, your last role in SO, Relief Production Manager, to being offered, you know, a Chief Executive role. Geez, I must have um, seen some real qualities in you to see that you could take that step. Yeah. Uh, so the Relief Production Manager's job is I was in charge of all of the production systems in Bass Strait. Right. It's a pretty high job, even though it's relief. Right. The fellow who, who I was relieving had gone as to... Um, the US, I think, to Harvard to do a postgrad mm -hmm. work. So he was fairly well thought of and fairly well qualified. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I was given his job whilst he was away for six months or something. So I must have been well thought of to be given sure. that job. Absolutely. And I had, I, I believe, I had a pretty good career with this. So, mm -hmm. um, and I, I had no doubt that I could name any one of half a dozen people above me in ESSO who would give me sterling references. Right. I, you know, I, I think I'd done fairly well with ESSO. Right. So I'm very guys, proud of my record there. Yeah, so these guys say to you, uh, OK, Jim, what do you need to take the job? That must have been uh, uh, an exciting phone call to get. Yeah, well, it was sort of, oh, my goodness. So now, of course, uh, by then, um, Di and I were together, my second wife. And, yeah. Uh, and I was going through separation, painful separation, divorce process with mm -hmm. my first wife. <clears throat> Pardon me. So it was a restart all round. Yeah. So I wrote down the conditions under which I would be prepared to take the job, mm -hmm. knowing that there was still to be a separation from ESSO. Right. As well. Mm -hmm. And they accepted it. Okay. And I said, you're right, I said, when can you start? But the next question, I said, well, I've got to get out of ESSO. So I resigned. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was about August of that year. We were in Darwin. No, not in August. We're in, yeah, we're in August. We were there for the, one of the pre-placement interviews because the Power and Water Authority people yeah. um, and the government people also wanted to know that the person that was going to be running this into gas pipeline because it was, in a, se in a sense, it was a de facto government pipeline. They'd underwritten it. It was servicing their power stations. Mm -hmm. um, they uh, were responsible for approval of the annual budget and funding the annual annual budget. Mm -hmm. and, and then we took a cut uh, it was a, a formulaic thing, you know, where we, we took a, a piece of money for being there at all. This is NT Gas. Yeah. And uh, then we had incentives to do better and stuff. Mm -hmm. And at that time, NT Gas was owned by the three companies still, yes. AGL. And yeah. AGL decided, in their wisdom, they wanted more exposure upstream, so they bought out Mooney Oil. They bought out CSL Petroleum. Mm-hmm. And so that they wound up with the marine oil and gas fields, 
they wound up with a pretty significant piece of the Palm Valley gas field mm -hmm. <clears throat> and they wound up with the Roma to Brisbane pipeline mm -hmm. as well as some production <clears throat> in the Surat Basin. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, by default, I'm an ATL employee. Right. And I'm now Northern Territory Manager for AGL, mm -hmm. which means I'm running the marine oil and gas field mm -hmm. and looking after the joint venture interest in Palm Valley, as well as the pipeline. Right. And then AGL, in a very short period of time, decided to get out of it, okay. of the upstream. And, uh, so they just had a, uh, a complete change <laughs> of strategy in relation to Correct. vertical integration. Yeah. Right, Okay. And uh, and so they're selling, and but quite what they're selling and to whom is unknown. Okay. And uh, Santos emerged as uh, the likely buyer of the production, which indeed ultimately came to pass. We were left with the pipelines and <coughs> and. Uh, And I, for a moment, thought I might get moved on with the production systems. Mm -hmm. However, AGL were in negotiations with the federal government about the Moomba to Sydney pipeline mm -hmm. because they had a first rights of refusal, and the Commonwealth had gone into got into a uh, asset disposal mode. I think it was Keating's time, mm -hmm. and they were. Caching assets in the pipeline seemed a logical thing to sell. Mm -hmm. um, however, the, the Commonwealth hadn't read their contracts and they, they'd forgotten about this first right of refusal because Connor, under Whitlam, had nationalised the project. It was originally an AGL project. Mm -hmm. And AGL, I think, had spent about $30 million into the project, ordering steel and preliminary engineering work and land acquisition and stuff when Connor nationalised it and as part of the deal you know the signatures to get the thing across to the Commonwealth they were given first right of refusal to mm -hmm. so make a long story short um, AGL Bruce Beeran asked me to come to Sydney and help with the acquisition process and the changeover, which we did, and we gave Kim Beasley a cheque for 500 and something million, I forget what. Mm -hmm. But we were forced to have partners, so we got Petronas of Malaysia and Nova of Canada as our partners. We were allowed to, under the deal, I think we had 51% and they had 49% between them of mm -hmm. the Moomba to Sydney pipeline. And so I was around assisting with completing that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, moved to Canberra to operate the pipeline and mm -hmm. run the company, which was East Australia Pipeline Limited. Mm -hmm. And so by the June of 1994, we're resident in Canberra. Right. And, you, and you're formally in the role of managing director? Of EPL. Yeah. And then I was asked to take charge of all of AGL's pipelines and became general manager. Mm-hmm of the AGL Pipelines Division inside AGL, mm -hmm. working for Bruce Beeran. <clears throat> and um, so then we 
sit about doing some things, I sit about doing some things from a perspective of a major pipeline group. So we built the first interconnection between Victoria and New South Wales, a connection from sort of just south of Wagga Wagga to Barnawatha, mm-hmm. which is west of Wodonga, and that was a direct connection of pipeline to pipeline and market to market. So mm-hmm. for the first time, Cooper Basin gas could be sold in Victoria mm-hmm. and Bass Strait gas could be sold in New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I call that the logical link. Right. Because the Eastern Gas Pipeline was also BHP, still had it in prospect. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got it built. Um, the day after we commissioned it... Oh, and we... Uh, Gas and Fuel Corporation was the Victorian connection and they weren't happy with us coming into their territory. So they actually joined us and provided 50% of the funding for it while we provided, people provided the other 50. Mm-hmm. So it was a joint venture at the end. But the day after we commissioned it, what well, was entirely our idea, mm-hmm. but the day after we commissioned it, the Longford gas plant blew up. Right. And Victoria was in all sorts of trouble. Mm-hmm. And so because of the AGL connection, we were able to go back into the New South Wales AGL customer base. It wasn't me, it was AGL. Mm-hmm. And suppress demand by simply telling them, you know, under their contracts, there was the ability for AGL to say, we've got force majeure and we right. do this and the other thing. It wasn't quite force majeure. <clears throat> I'm not sure if that was a term that I would use now, but... They basically said there is a greater need. Yeah. And so we flowed gas into Victoria, kept Victoria's emergency services, mm-hmm. hospitals and so forth, mm-hmm. up with gas demand. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, we kept gas going into the Victorian system, um, prevented oxygen getting into it. Right. People shutting down hot water services and yeah. stoves and things, you get drawback. Yeah. And if you get oxygen, gas mixture, underground in pipes... Big trouble. Well, the, mo- the moment someone actually ignites something... Right. You can, with, the, with that mixture down there, you can get explosive. Yeah, sure. Outcome. Um, right. So our presence, the presence of our gas and the mm. pressure we were able to apply and the flow into the Victorian system was a great um, fillip for Victoria and a... Massive improvement in the safety of the of the problem for mm-hmm. Victoria. Mm-hmm. We built that. Then we built the. Um, we began to re- replicate the Ra- Ra- Raymond to Brisbane pipeline. Mm-hmm. We also built the pipeline up to Mount Isa mm-hmm. from Bolivar to Mount Isa, um, and built the pipeline from West Wyalong up to Dobo Parks, Forbes, and uh, Wellington. So, so expanded the reach of right. gas yeah. in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm interested in is, uh, you know, you grow up in a small country town, the son of a barber and his wife, yeah. you know, uh, you initially think about a career either in medicine or as a priest, mm-hmm. you know, and you end up, you know, with a, a very substantive role, you know, leading no doubt large teams of people in a very, you know, um, exciting and uh, innovative business. How, how did you develop personally the skills to enable you to 
move through your career and, and, and do it confidently. Yeah, that's interesting. I, Esso's training was pretty good. Esso had, Esso helped me immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, and this sort of micro pieces of it that, mm-hmm. that I remember. I did a Kepner Trigo course with Esso. Are you aware of Kepner Trigo? No. It's a, it's a problem solving uh, technique. Okay. Which forces you to look at how it used to be, how it is now, what's changed, and distill from that what's actually ch- what what of those changes has caused this issue. Mm-hmm. And so I've relied upon that a great deal. And that's a simple example, but I've relied upon that sort of process. Um, I I was one time in charge of. Industrial relations for SO and Bass Strait, which mm-hmm. was challenging. Mm-hmm. So I learned a fair bit about um, union management. I say union management, that's not a good word, about IR management yeah. and uh, the risks in, in that IR can pose. Mm-hmm. I learned a great deal about safety management mm-hmm. um, and risk. Mm-hmm. And what about your and own... And risk mitigation, more importantly. Right. Mm-hmm. What about your own, you know, innate character uh why do you think it was that you were offered these opportunities um my innate character is i suppose what it is now and what it was then mm-hmm. i don't think i've changed a great deal personally i've always been pretty optimistic i've never been driven by having an ambition to do these things i never planned mm. to be in charge of all those platforms i never mm-hmm. planned to be general manager of pipelines. I never aimed for that job in in AGL. So someone else, I suppose, must have recognised mm-hmm. that I could satisfy the job mm. needs. Uh, I also did, you know, pretty significant training, formal training with AGL in in management techniques and mm-hmm. stuff. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. A lot of the people that I interview for the podcast who are in you know the later part of their career often it's happened by circumstance rather than design. And yet a lot of the younger people coming through think that they need to be extremely considered and very strategic about how they manage their career, you know. Uh, Quite a change of mindset. That's interesting because I have no doubt that had I set about planning to do what I've done, it probably wouldn't have happened. (laughs) (laughs) And so what happened in 2005 for you to decide that you want to move more into a portfolio or board career? Well, into that, as general manager of pipelines, we put together the strongest uh, network of high-pressure gas pipelines mm-hmm. or in the country. An epic where the Americans were coming and going, you know. Um, and, and so all of a sudden I'm sitting there and, and I'm actually in charge of this I forget how many miles we had, 13,000 kilometres or something of high-pressure gas pipeline mm-hmm. and they're hauling 40, 40% or something of the nation's gas, you know. Right. And uh, then AGL said, in their wisdom, now that's worth X and we can get that X and stick it instead of having it in, on our balance sheet as yeah. an ownership of 50% of people mm-hmm. of, of the pipelines various, mm-hmm. we'll we can cash it by way of an IPO. Right. 
So they put together a group uh, to IPO mm-hmm. the pipeline division. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> Novacore still owned 20%, and uh, also Novacore and Petronas between them owned 49%. Um, so there was that had to be considered as well. But anyway, I think we floated it for 800 million. Um, and then once the decision was taken to float it, um, I was asked by the gen, the then um, chief executive elect of AGL, and was my immediate boss, what I wanted to do. This is now, this is two thousand, mm-hmm. and I said I haven't thought about it much. What do you want to do with me? He said, oh, well, there's, there's options, you know, we can just give you a cheque and you can go on your way. Because mm-hmm. I, was, I was 60, so, you know, early retirement was yeah. an option. And he said, oh, he said, we can keep you hanging around doing something else. We can yeah. put you in this job over here. And I said, well, what about the new business? Mm-hmm. Who's going to, what's that going to work? And he said, oh, I don't know, we're going to have to probably find someone to run it. Right. And uh, I said, well, you've got to be careful doing that because, you know, you may think... At that time, Macquarie mm-hmm. Bank and Babcock and Brown mm-hmm. were treating companies as commodities. Yeah, I remember. Uh, so, and they were breaking things up and selling mm. pieces off and and... And uh, the Macquarie model was you get hold of the thing like the airport yeah, and you take a huge fee for getting hold of it and restructuring mm-hmm. it and then you get additional fees as an operator and you milk it. Mm-hmm. What's the Macquarie model, I called it. Right. And I think AGL had some ambition that they might do something similar with the pipeline trust. Mm-hmm. And that didn't really appeal to me. I didn't like the Macquarie model because I was bumping into them in lots of places Mm -hmm. when things became available for sale and we were a competitor of theirs. And so anyway, I said, well, you know, if you think that that's a financial instrument, that's one thing. Yeah. I said, but if you think of it as a bunch of hardware that needs to be managed by someone that knows how to manage gas and gas hardware, then it's a completely different answer. Yeah. I said, I'd be happy to go with it as the man that's got the hardware knowledge and the Mm -hmm. gas management knowledge. And he said, serious? And I said, yeah. He said, all right, I'll I'll ask the whoever the decision maker, whoever ATL board, I suppose, the next thing I know, would you accept a job as chief executive? Right. Oh, yeah, I would. Uh, how's that going to work? You know, and ticky, 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 you know, because I'm in Canberra, it's going to mm-hmm. be, so I would have to be based in Sydney. And mm-hmm. da, da. So next thing, it's out the door and I'm ringing the bell in the Sydney Stock Exchange, you know. Right. And I'm chief executive of a publicly listed business that's worth 800 million. Wow. And um, we're now going to improve this, aren't we? So I spent five years... Mm-hmm in my mind, getting it from good to better. Mm-hmm. And come 2005, I've reached 65. Yeah. And 
I'm beginning to think that I probably need to move on from a personal point of view. The yeah. kids are going up, you know, uh, and making their own lives and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, we moved to Sydney living in Paddington, so that was all nice, you know. Yeah. But I thought, why hang around, you know? Uh, my chairman was George Bennett, lovely man. And George was um, considering retirement of his own. He was in his 70s. Mm -hmm. And I was starting to think, well, if there's going to be a cure retirement, mm -hmm. I'll probably need to get to the top of it, you know. Right. Because I think that getting me replaced is is important. Yes. And we, yeah, yeah, yeah. So make a long story short, I resigned in mid two thousand and five. Yeah. And um, Mick mm -hmm. uh, McCormick was appointed to replace me. Mm -hmm. And George retired a year or so later. Right. Um, and so, uh, at what point did you move to uh, Queensland? Well, immediately I retired, I had a holiday house, we had a place on the beach down at Mollymook and we moved there. Right. But uh, my wife had, I'd said I always wanted to go back to Gippsland. My, yeah. My retirement plan was to go back to my roots. Okay. And she found an advertisement for a place on the Gippsland Lakes. Right. So I bought that and sold Mollymook. Mm-hmm. We bought that and sold Mollymook and moved down to Nungurna on the mm -hmm. Gippsland Lakes. And then we bought a bot hole in Melbourne. Right. Glen Iris. And we, so we had two places in Victoria we could put a head down. Yeah. And then I was approached and asked if I'd accept board appointments. Mm -hmm. And I accepted several. So at the time that you retired from your CEO role, you hadn't intended to build a portfolio, correct? And get board Directorship report? No. Yeah. You I hadn't intended. Right. I hadn't planned it. Right. I had thought it could happen. Yeah. Because a lot of people around me in the financial markets, you know, mm -hmm. advisors and things, that had sort of briefly hinted, if you right. like. Yeah. But I hadn't had any serious discussion, mm -hmm. and I had made no serious plans. Mm -hmm. and I had made no serious. I had made no serious approaches. Mm -hmm. But I began to get some. Right. And uh, so. Um, yeah, my memory's going to let me down. Um, so, uh, Hastings Funds Management? Yeah, Hastings Funds Management. Um, I was approached by the Epic Pipeline System, and I was approached. And I said, yeah, why not? So, yeah. Uh-huh. And then WDS? WDS. Well, a friend of mine owned the pipeline construction business that went into WDS. Okay. What, was acquired by them or? Uh-huh. The pipeline business was acquired by WDS, was it? WDS was formed around um, a coal contracting business. Yes. Walter. Yeah. And Diversified was the, cons the pipeline construction business. Mm -hmm. And a fellow called Ian Johnson was packaging this thing to get mm -hmm. the float away. And he put the two businesses together, coupled them, and then floated mm -hmm. WDS as an entity, mm -hmm. which was a coal 
contracting entity in a pipeline construction yeah. business. Yeah. And I was asked, I was on, I was asked by Diversified to be on their board. Yeah. And then it came to, well, we're going to fight a chairman and uh, they're all the people that existed mm-hmm. and they were seeking, someone was seeking to find external chairman. Mm-hmm. And there was a conversation around that and somebody said, well, you've got so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so already here. Yeah. And they're going to stay, so you're going to be paying them as directors. Right. And they've got the skills, why don't you do to do do? So mm-hmm. next thing I know, I'm chairman of WDS. Mm-hmm. And then I had another one, um, Anthony Wools in Western Australia. I was approached from Western Australia to see if I was doing a board. Have I written it down there? Uh, Pearl Street? Pearl Street. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a company which was um, specialising in non-destructive testing. Mm-hmm. You know, x-ray examination of welds and... and uh, ultrasound inspection, inspection of welds and stuff, and high pressure, uh, you know, hydraulic testing of, mm-hmm. of structures, and and they were looking for someone, and so, yeah, so I joined them, and, and so I had two board positions and one chairman's job, and they, they were scattered, you know, so one was headquartered in Sydney, one was headquartered in Melbourne, one was headquartered in Perth. Right. And all of a sudden, I'm in an aeroplane. Yeah. And I'm living four hours from Melbourne Airport, so right. it's pretty bloody tricky. Yeah. And then Paul and I got got back together and he mm-hmm. said, better come and have a look what we're doing up here. So that's when I started. I had those directions right. when I started coming and going from Victoria to, right. to Queensland yeah. to look at what uh, I guess energy was doing. And at the same time, you're also the uh, chairman of the uh, Energy Pipeline CRC. Correct, and the Energy Pipeline CRC right. asked me. So you're a very, you remain a very busy person. So it's pretty busy, yeah. <laughs> CRC was important work and very constructive work, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. Yeah, we've done quite a lot of recruiting in the CRC space, and it is, uh, it's very interesting. And uh, as you say, it's a... It's a very important, you know, part of uh, development of technologies, particularly for assisting industries. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And so, but at this point now, uh, uh, Intelligas Group is your entire attention. Correct. Right. I retired from all those other positions a couple of years ago. Just took my leave. I, I realised that this thing... Intelligas was going to, if it was going to realise its potential, it was going to need a fair bit of attention. Mm-hmm. It was getting an enormous amount of attention from Paul and Derek, who were the other two. Mm-hmm. We'd attracted another investor named Ken Hall. Oh, yes. Ken owned uh, Kalgoorlie Power Systems, mm-hmm. and he'd sold those into Pacific Energy. Mm-hmm. And Ken was attracted to what we're doing, and he put some money in, and um, so the, the outfit grew. Mm-hmm. And but its potential was still pretty huge. Mm-hmm. And I felt that, pardon me, I couldn't con- till continue to fulfil my role mm-hmm. by being a fly-in, fly-out board member, stroke chairman. Yeah. 
So I said to die one day, we have to move to Queensland. So we sold up and bought this. Well, there's worse places to live in the world than here. That's true. It's beautiful. And, uh, and so you, to close out this conversation, uh, a couple of things. Um, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are aspiring to be CEOs and non-executive directors in the future. I mean, you've said earlier that a lot of your career has been unplanned. But if you were offering advice in terms of the things that younger or earlier career professionals should develop in order to achieve their full career potential, what are, what are some of the key lessons that you've learned that you'd pass on? I think the first thing you need to do is do the job you're doing very well yeah. and do it better than anyone else can do it. Yeah, that's excellent advice. And plan that that job expands under your direction so that the job that you're in becomes more important. Right. And make sure that the people that you're working for are fully aware of what you're doing, uh, why you're doing it, and how you intend to improve that position Mm -hmm. to the benefit of the organisation that owns you. Mm -hmm. And So so it's not about you, it's about the work you're doing. So what you're saying there, if I understand correctly, is rather than thinking about how do I get a promotion is how do I grow my current role? Uh, Because that's where you prove your competency to create opportunity. Yeah, you you are being observed. Right. Uh, The outcomes of your work, uh, your input into your work are being observed. Mm -hmm. And you have the opportunity, and if you don't, make the opportunity to talk about that to your seniors Mm -hmm. so that they understand what you're trying to do, they appreciate what you've done mm-hmm. the same way that you do, that, you, that they understand why you've mm-hmm. done what you've done and what benefits you've brought to the business because mm-hmm. it's not about you, it's always about the business. We, mm-hmm. Our job in every job is to serve the organisation that, that pays us and to do more and better. Mm-hmm than we have done in the last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's excellent advice. What What else? I think you need to keep yourself well attuned and informed about the things that are really important uh, for the business. And I use some examples. If you're in the sales business, then I would, and I've never been there, mm-hmm. <laughs> except as a, at a retail level as a young fellow, but I would suspect that the relationship with your customers, your prime customers, is significantly important and that needs to be... A, that needs to be... Uh, a point of constant improvement Mm -hmm. and that will mean contact, it will mean uh, friendships, it will mean a lot of things but it will mean that you're constantly trying to improve the relationship between yourself Mm -hmm. and the customer base Mm -hmm. which will be between your company and and its customer base. Mm -hmm. How much of the work that you did in your family's small retail business and the skills that you learned at that level do you think impacted your career success? I think the most important thing 
that my small business my dad and my mum were both very gregarious people and and they weren't frightened of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, Dad was president of the local football club, for example, and president of the local racing club. You know, they still have a horse race name for him down there. Okay. Uh, uh, Jim McDonald Memorial. Oh, right. Handicap, the Trelgan Race Club. Okay. And because he stood behind a chair snipping away at people's hair... Right. He knew a lot of people who were his regular customers. He probably knew a lot of their secrets too, I imagine. I, I suspect he did, but yeah. he, he treated them all as individuals and treated them all as friends to the extent they were. If they weren't, he made them friends. He mm -hmm. was a... I learnt a lot from my dad about how to manage, how to deal with people. Mm -hmm. And my mum, similarly, was behind the counter and serving cigarettes to, you know, returned soldiers and stuff, and she mm -hmm. took an interest, a deep interest in their lives mm -hmm. as individuals. And I suppose um, that was simply a customer service lady uh, um, relationship. Mm -hmm. But she made that work to where they may have been coming for cigarettes, but the next week they'd still come in for the cigarettes and she'd be selling them a watch for their wife for right. a Christmas present for their grandchildren and yeah. stuff. So she, her job was to make her business work, Yeah. but the mechanism for doing that mm -hmm. was to make her customers feel welcome mm -hmm. and make her customers think of things they might otherwise not mm -hmm. have thought about. And I'm sure... So I learned a lot about yeah. personal relationships and I've relied mm. heavily on personal relationships mm -hmm. through my entire business career. Mm. Because coming back to the point you made, you know, you hadn't worked, you haven't worked in sales, but my view on that is that every role is selling. I mean, you're if you're a CEO, you're selling your employees of why they should continue to work for you. You're selling your board on why they should continue to employ you in the role. You're selling your suppliers on why they should do business. So it's all selling, isn't it? And it all comes down to relationship. Yeah, it does come down to relationships. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you're obviously a proud family man. Um, you know, what, what are your own family up to now? My oldest uh, is, a, is, a, is a man, mm -hmm. Steve, and he was born in 1967. So mm -hmm. he was born about the time that I entered the industry that I wound up making right. my life in. Yeah. And he's become part of the industry. He's, today, as we speak, he's... Um, on Barracuda Platform in Bass Strait, he's offshore installation manager. Right, so he's okay. he's following, yeah, uh, if you like, yeah. my boot marks around Bass Strait. Okay. Um, he also worked for Energy Developments Limited before he took a job with SO. Mm -hmm. So he worked with Paul. So there's a connection there that's that's alive and still alive. Mm -hmm. They've got a strong relationship. Okay. And God, goodness knows one day what, what might happen. Um, but he's learning what I learnt about having to manage people in a closed environment. Yeah. You know, it's like being captain of a ship, being yeah. in charge of a platform. Mm -hmm. So he's in the oil business. And as I say today, on Barracuda Platform, my daughter Gemma, who's the next oldest, mm -hmm. and she was born in 1968, uh, 
she's also in the oil and gas business. She's an office manager for a company called CUD, mm-hmm. an American outfit who have opened an office in Sale. Okay. And they're in the workover business. Right. And um, and so she, Gemma's working for them and, and she's working for a bloke who was her boss in her previous employment, which was a similar company or si- right. in a similar business. Okay. So she's living in Seoul. Mm-hmm. They both have two children. Stephen has two boys. Right. And G- Gemma has a boy and a girl, so mm-hmm. four grandchildren in Victoria. Okay. The next eldest... Um, who was um, uh, Diane's, my wife's child by her first marriage, is yeah. Joanne. And she's on the boundaries of the oil and gas business okay. as well, and goodness right. knows she's back in Darwin. She, uh-huh. uh, there's a project up there called Itchit, right, which is the construction of a major uh, LNG plant, which, will, which is an export plant which will be exporting LNG from uh, fields in the Timor Sea. Right. Um, Joanne works for the company that is contracted to run the accommodation camp for that project. Okay. And so she's manager right. and she's in charge of a camp that's got over 4,000 beds. Wow. It's got a hotel, okay. a movie theatre, gymnasium, right. supermarket, got all sorts of things inside the site. And so that's a very responsible job, mm-hmm. um, managing one of the largest industry accommodation camps mm-hmm. in Australia. Mm-hmm. Kate, the youngest, uh, Kate's child of Di and I, Kate is an accountant, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't want to know, she's working in the pipeline business. <laughs> um, Andy Lucas, whose company is AJ Lucas, it's a Oh, yes, I know, yeah. They and a French company called Speakpag, who mm-hmm. are an internationally acknowledged major pipeline constructor, mm-hmm. are in joint ventureship to replicate the interconnect between Victoria and New South Wales, or part of it that I talked about yes, before. Yeah. So they're building pipeline presently in northern Victoria. Mm-hmm to expand the capacity of the APA system between Victoria and New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And the, the work is being done in Northern Victoria, the accounting for the project is being done here in Brisbane, and Kate's on that accounting team. Right. So the, uh, <laughs> the apples haven't fallen far from the tree. Far from the tree. Right. And, uh, and final question before we wrap it up. Uh, you know, you're a busy man, you've had a very busy career, but what are the kind of things that you've enjoyed doing outside of work along the way to keep you uh, energised and excited about life? I was a member of Rotary in Darwin, and that was thoroughly enjoyable extracurricular work. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had... Uh, very good success with racehorses. Okay. Um, I, uh, at one time in the middle of all of this, I became a partner in the Moringo Stud. Right. Which is, uh, I had a farm when we were living in Canberra. I acquired this farm down on the south coast of New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And that farm plus another smaller property 
combined uh, to make them Ringo studs. So one right. was the stud and we were the adjustment property. Mm-hmm. And we bred and raced a number of pretty good racehorses, mm-hmm. the best of which was Victory Vane. Right. Uh, she was beaten by a head in the Golden Slipper and then went ahead and won the size produce stakes and the champagne stakes and she was officially Australia's two-year-old of the year Wow! in the year 2002. Okay. And she was a sensational racehorse. Mm. We raced a uh, horse called Verdict Declared, who, mothered, who was the dam of a horse called a Country Girl that won a Group 3. Uh, country, um, Verdict Declared won two listed races. Country Girl won a Group 3 race. Um, we bred and never raced because we didn't never get into the race course. Uh, a pretty famous horse called Takeover Target. Uh-huh. And we were, we're at Moringo Farm. This is where we were twenty five percent owners mm-hmm. of him because he was sold to some accountants and lawyers that were working for Kerry Packer when okay. he took over the casino. Crown Casino from Lloyd Williams and mm-hmm. and uh, what's the other bloke's name? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, Reddit fellow in Victoria. Right. Doesn't matter. Um, and we never did get him the racetrack, so he was sold. When uh, when we at Moringo had our separation, um, Tony Hartnell and I, mm-hmm. we were selling off through auction a fair bit of stock. And uh, he was plonked into the auction, and uh, he was sold for twelve hundred dollars plus GST, which fourteen hundred I think altogether. Right. Twelve hundred something plus GST, which took it to a smidgen over fourteen hundred, and went on to win four point eight million and become officially the world's best sprinter. Wow! But even that gave me joy. Not not wouldn't have given me as much joy as it might have had we <laughs> kept him, but. But it, it gave me joy to have been part of that story. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and uh, we're still in racehorses. We've okay. got a number of... We now have... Um, keep sort of about 20%. Mm-hmm. The target is to have about 20% of about five horses. Right. Which means we've got the equivalent of one horse yeah, running yeah. around. Right. But you're... Uh, you're but we've got five risk. horses... Right. Yeah, manage risk, and we've got five horses... To follow and cheerful. Uh, so uh, racing, racing, and my dad racing was a big part of his life. Right. When I was a kid, he used to take me up the racetrack on Saturday mornings to paint the running rail white with whitewash. Oh yeah. Whenever the Trogan races were on, and right. I was like about twelve or something. And, okay. And if the reward I would get for that was to drive the car around the racetrack, right. dropping the stewards off at their various oh, yeah. watching points. Imagine painting that would be like painting the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It'd never uh, end. Yes and no. It was just whitewash, you know. Right. All it was was freshening the... These days they're plastic. Yeah. Those days they were timber rails. And right. it was just freshening them up, making them nice and white. Yeah, right. Uh, so they were quite visible and okay. stuff. So it, was, it wasn't as though you were trying to keep them glossy. No. Just trying to keep them white with whitewash. Yeah, right. And so, Jim... Uh, it's been a great conversation. Before we close it out, is there anything that you finally wanted to say or add that we haven't already talked about? No, I don't think so. For the people that are listening that feel or believe 
that there is a great career in directorships mm-hmm. uh, post your working life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, offer, I offer a word of caution. There is a career. Um, you need to be sure that you've completed your uh, AICD training. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you need to be sure that you understand the risks, mm-hmm. the personal risks mm-hmm. that directorships bring, mm-hmm. and that's risks to your financial security and your family's financial security. And your personal brand. And your personal brand, yeah, and, and that's exactly right. Mm. So getting it right is very important mm. from both a personal your personal brand or from your reputational point of view mm-hmm. and also financially from a personal financial point of view mm. it is nice though when you when you're around a company that does do well it's nice to be able to remember and point to the things that you think you did well absolutely and others will remember them as well you know your reputation as a director is not a function of what you think. Yeah. It's a function of what your fellow directors think and your chairman. Yeah. Think of your performance around the board table. It's also very important these days because the world is a financial world that uh, I had to learn very quickly mm-hmm. how to interpret financial documents and how to manage and, in fact, develop financial models. Mm-hmm for decision-making, mm-hmm. and uh, you need to be sure that you've got that tucked away mm-hmm. as well. Excellent advice. I meet people every day yeah. who want to move into a portfolio career, and I think that they don't really, uh, in many instances, think through the true ramifications yeah. of that. And one last thought right. is that all businesses have, leaving aside financial risk, that in itself is a problem that I've just tried to cover your need to address that, but all businesses have inherent safety risks mm-hmm. uh, and witness some of the recent stuff, you know, <coughs> grocery stores with... Uh, oh, yes, for sure. Grocery 7-11. stores with, yeah, uh, well, Seven Eleven. it was mismanagement of, of wages stuff, mm-hmm. right, which has created a huge mm-hmm. problem. But others where they've they've had um, deteriorating stock on shelves that that ultimately reflects on the parent company. Yeah. You know where they've poisoned people. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then there's probably several other examples that if I stopped and thought about it for a while, mm. a Volkswagen with their uh, cheating on the issue of yeah, emissions emissions yeah. in the American marketplace. Yes, and, you know, unfortunately, the board, the buck stops with the board. The buck and stops with the board, even though, in fact, the decisions that caused that kerfuffle yeah. were taken a long way down the, the sure. tree from the board. Yeah. The board can't escape mm-hmm. the, um, the the feedback, the flyback, or the, whatever you call it, the yeah. backlash yeah. from those decisions being permitted to be taken. Mm-hmm. And there's that you can stop and think about any business and think through the business and you can identify areas mm-hmm. of serious risk that will create a threat mm-hmm. to the business and you need to be sure you've done a lot of that thinking yeah. once you get into a business. Well, do you know, I think that that is, uh, you know, 
so true and uh, and excellent advice. I'd like to thank you very much for your time today okay. and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you. Thanks again for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jim. I look forward to having you along on future episodes of the Arate podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.